Genesis chapter 8 is where we're at. I'm going to get in verse 1 and read the rest. And uh, again, it's one of these passages that we likely are quick to read over, um, but we're going to spend time in it this morning. It says this, But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually. The end of 150 days, the waters had abated. In the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. The end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground, but the dove found no place to set her foot. She returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. Waited another seven days, and again he went, sent forth the dove out of the ark, and the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove. She did not return to him anymore. In the six hundred year and first, or six hundred and first year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from all of the earth. Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the twenty-seventh day of the month, the earth had dried out. And God said, Noah, get out of out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you, bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth and they, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him, every beast, every creeping thing and every bird. Everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I'll never again curse the ground because of man, for the intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I've done. While the earth remains, sea time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease." This is God's Word. And if you're wondering what Ararat looks like uh, in that picture of the sermon, that's Ararat. Um, If you ever vacation there, which I doubt you will, maybe you'll see Noah's Ark. But even though the Bible, uh, which some of you may know this, some of you may not, is 66 different books. The Bible's the book, but it's 66 different books. And even though it's written by over 40 different authors, it really tells one big story. Call it God's story. And God's one story, though, throughout these 66 books, has what can be understood as kind of four different parts to it. And it's important uh, to understand those parts. And they're um, seen in beginning in Genesis. The first part of the story makes sense. It's creation. And in creation, God, who is a good God, creates a good world full of good things. And we see very quickly, or so it seems quickly in Genesis 3, the fall of creation. 
could be said it goes from formation to deformation, from creation to fall. And in fall, men basically create or created men declare their independence through their disobedience. And through their disobedience, death enters the world and sin corrupts the hearts of men whereby all they desire is evil. But God, being good and holy and just, He acts to punish sin. But being merciful and gracious and loving, He acts to save sinners. And this is where we get part three of the story. Probably best called redemption. Redemption is the third part of the story where God unleashes His wrath and provides a way of escape from that wrath at the same time. Redeemed men are saved from the penalty of sin as a redeemed people, but we see very clearly as the Old Testament proceeds that they're not saved from the influence of sin. And that's where the final part of the story comes in, the part that we really have not fully experienced yet, which is the restoration where God completely removes the presence of sin and recreates the world that He has and loves. Now, if you take Noah's story, the small, brief story of Noah is somewhat of an abridged version of that big story, of the same four parts. We read in Genesis 6 where the story begins that God describes the world as being corrupt and evil and broken and full of sin and wickedness, implying that at some point it wasn't like that. At some point it was good. And he reveals in that same chapter his plan to destroy it. So he implies creation, he describes fall, but then he declares his plan to redeem. He is going to redeem one man, save one man and his family, and he instructs that one man to build a boat and to gather in that boat representative samples of birds and animals and every creeping thing that's on the earth. And so after nearly a hundred-ish years of construction, we get to Genesis 7, which we dealt with last week, where God unleashes His wrath. He punishes sin on the form, in the form of a global flood, and it destroys every single living thing on the face of a planet, less the things and the people that are in the ark. And it changes the landscape of the earth forever. In that same moment, as we see the wrath unleashed, we see the rescue. And finally, with everything dead, covered by the water, we come to the narrative of Genesis 8, which it begins to get closer to that fourth part. That fourth part of restoring, if not recreating, what was destroyed in the wrath. Now, on the surface of this story in Genesis 8, the events of the chapter seem pretty, pretty straightforward. And we have a tendency, therefore, to kind of read through Genesis 8 and go, okay, this is what happened. I see that the boat stops, the, the water subsides, Noah walks out. All right, let's get on to, to more important events. Where's Abraham? The truth is, we need to slow down. In our Ephesians study, we go over all of five verses, I think, every week, which is unusual. 
at least for people who are so used to more and faster. And if we stop and slow down, though, in Genesis chapter 8, and we look at the details, we begin to appreciate perhaps the deeper meaning of these events. I don't know if, as you were listening, you, you heard how specific the dates and the times were in this chapter, and that's not by accident. The identification of months and days reveal that a lot of time transpired between the destruction of the old world and the beginning of what was a new one. And as I've sat on it this week, I began to compare my own life to Noah in this way, that it seems like between parts three and four, between redemption and between restoration, is kind of where the faith that we have and the faith that we hold, life basically takes place. Right in the in-between spot. And that's where Noah is. Genesis 8 is the in-between spot, if you will, between all the wrath and all the salvation and all the promise. And that's where we find ourselves in our life of faith. And the truth is, the life of faith is not a pleasure cruise. Right? It's not a carnival cruise with pools and nice lounge chairs and a full buffet. It's like Noah, in a big wooden box, dark, for a long time. Like, these are the ones who were saved. These are the believers floating. And it's in this story, I believe, that we begin to learn, perhaps, what trusting God really looks like for believers. So to begin, let's remember that Noah spent a significant amount of time drifting in the open sea. Just drifting. According to chapter 7, the rains fell and the waters rose, so the torrential downpour like probably has never and will never be seen. Fountains gushing for that happened for 40 days and for 40 nights. Pure chaos. And Genesis 8 teaches us that after that occurred, that the water covered the earth completely without really changing for about 110 days. That's just counting the days for the months that are listed here. And at some point during that 150-day time period, from getting in and from rest, at some point, the ark came to rest on that mountain. So if you think about it, Noah and his family floated for nearly five months. Literally floating without a paddle. No sail, no motor, no windows open. Floating in the darkness together. God never told Noah how long the water would remain. God never told him how long he would be in the ark. God never told him anything beyond just get in the ark and then he shut the door. And we can only imagine how he must have felt, but we can't imagine if we know ourselves well. I think after 40 days of the chaos, right? It must have just been crazy, loud, rocking, whatever, but when the 40 days were done, the rain stopped, the fountain stopped, and it's just water. 
And I imagine that as they're in the boat, they are um, perhaps comforted by the quietness now, but perhaps even joyful. Wow. We survived that. Can you believe that? Praise God. Talking about um, what God had done to redeem them and to save them and to rescue them. But the months passed. Is it possible that perhaps after the next 40 days that the excitement of their salvation waned? Does this sound familiar? When the joy of being rescued, when the joy of being redeemed is suddenly like, this is it? So we're just, we're just floating in the boat? God never told them how long, right? This is what redemption, this is what salvation's like. And that excitement, like, woo, we're saved. Oh, I've never experienced that, Pastor. Uh huh. Haven't we all at some level? And then the months went on. And what was just maybe a waning of excitement now began maybe to be doubt. But what just happened? Did, did anything happen? Was I really saved? Was I really rescued? And then another month went by. And perhaps what was once a refuge, which was once like they're running into the ark getting excited, now they're just in a prison. Their salvation, which once was a refuge, has become a prison. I don't want to be in here. Can you imagine if you have a family, if you've ever gotten together in something like an RV you know exactly what I mean, right? It takes all of 24 hours to just go on. I mean, I get to drive, right? I'm like, close the door, leave me alone, right? It's crazy. We're together. At one point, they're probably hugging and joyful. And then over time, they're like, yeah, I'm going to go uh, look at the horses. You, can you stay over there with the parrots? Because I don't want to be near you. I want out of here. Noah and his family... That whole time are drifting in the open sea, drifting without direction, drifting without real destination, drifting without any ability to change anything. Faith. These are the believers. These are the Christians. Without doubt, their faith was tested as they were thrust into a situation where they were very clearly not in control. They could not control anything. They were, uh, as probably a pretty good description, in a very desolate and watery wilderness, right? We talk about wilderness. They were in a watery wilderness. There's just water and nothing else. Noah had been led into this wilderness which God does. And I think we can understand wilderness, but I think it's especially difficult to be in wilderness when the path that leads into it was one of obedience to God's Word. That's what happened to Noah, right? He did exactly what God told him to do. And now he's been in a boat for five months drifting. 
See, we often struggle in wilderness when we find ourselves in wilderness because I think we largely don't expect to experience wilderness. But the truth is, at some point in our faith journey, all of us will be led. I didn't say accidentally fall. We'll be led into wilderness, into watery wilderness, into desolation. Some of us have been there. Some of us are there right now. Some of us aren't sure how to determine if that's what it is, but that sounds like it. For some, wilderness is that place or time where you are literally devastated physically. Just devastated emotionally, devastated materially perhaps. For others, wilderness is that place where you you just feel lost. You feel uncertain. You feel confused about decisions to make. And for others, wilderness is that place where you just feel empty and you feel hungry and you feel dissatisfied with your life. Some of us are there. Some of us are heading there. I don't say that as some kind of like warning about upcoming punishment. I say that because I believe that wilderness is the place where God wants to take you to be alone with Him. In order to do that, He has to take a lot of things away. See, no one wants to be in wilderness. No one in the midst of it goes, I'm so glad I'm here. This is so awesome suffering. It's only when we get past it or go through it that we can look back and see, I think, what God was doing. No one wants to be in wilderness, but the truth is everyone needs one. God chooses to take us to where the only thing that we have is Him. And if you knew what that required, you would never choose it. It's a place where there is no one and nothing that can help fix that problem that you have. Not a pastor, not a book, not a spouse, not a bit of money. Nothing and no one but God. And because of that, wilderness is the place where you, I believe, are tempted most to compromise, most to disbelieve, most to sin in order to resolve the problem that you have. And do so apart from God. Wilderness is that hellish place where you are just desperate for rescue. And while the enemy wants you to believe while you're there that God has forgotten you. That's what he says. God has forgotten you. He doesn't know you are here. He wants you to believe that God has forgotten you and tempt you to escape from it, but I tell you that God wants you to draw closer to Him in it. To stop focusing on how to get out of it and start focusing on drawing closer to Him while you're in it. We are told in the very first verse of Genesis 8, God 
has not forgotten you. It says, God remembered Noah. God remembered Noah. He created a mighty wind, and the flood began to subside, and the boat came to rest atop a mountain exactly where and when God wanted to stop. After drifting for five months, hopeless, meaningless, seemingly directionless, it comes to stop exactly when God wanted to stop. And after the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat, the waters began to recede for another 74 days until it says the 10th month when the rest of the mountains became visible. But Noah didn't get out of the boat. At this point, he had been in the ark nearly 224 days. About seven and a half months. Noah waited another 40 days before he opened a window. Comes to rest, he doesn't open the window to find out, he waits over a month to open a window. It had been 264 days since he had entered the ark, nearly nine months. Noah then proceeds to send out several birds in hopes of discovering or discerning, if you will, where the water is, what to do next. First, he sends out a raven which flew around and around and eventually flew off. He waited a week, sent out a dove, and it returned because it did not find land. So that's been 271 days. He waits another week, sends out another dove, and it returns with an olive branch. 278 days. Sends out another dove after waiting another week, and it did not return, being 285 days. getting close to 10 months. Now, there's all kinds of weird interpretations of these birds. I read all kinds of commentaries and things, and it gets freaky strange, right? Guys get really creative with things that they go, it must mean this. And I'm going to share with some of you, but I don't know, maybe I'm not smart enough to figure this kind of stuff out, but it's a little weird, but go with me, and, and I will um, tell you what I think. Some believe, and maybe this is true, that the raven was sent out because these different birds and all these things coming back. That's an unclean bird, and, and they would say that that symbolizes the fleshly man, the unspiritual man, the unsaved man who goes out into the world. The raven is an omnivore, so it feasts on whatever. It would have plenty of dead carcasses to feast on. Once the raven goes into the world, even if it hangs around the ark acting holy, it wants to remain in the world and it eventually does. This is contrasted obviously with the dove. We know in Scripture the dove is most commonly symbolizing the Holy Spirit. So some believe that the dove represents the spiritual man. and The spiritual man goes into the world the first time he returns because there really is no place for him. The second time, even though it finds a place, it returns to the ark of God and brings an olive leaf, which is commonly a symbol of peace. 
The third time the dove doesn't return, not because it loves the world, but because God intends for his spirit to continue restoring the shalom or the peace that it found. You could get really creative, and I could sound really convincing. But let's just remember that the Bible was written for simple people. I'm not an academic. So more practically speaking, I think Noah's probably using birds the way sailors used birds for navigation. Now the difference is he's not trying to get anywhere. He's on a mountain. But he is trying to ascertain and assess the level of the water. Sailors used to release ravens, and they would release them to observe their line of flight. So a raven basically sees land and starts flying and will not return. But then they can say, oh, let's turn left and follow the raven. Well, the raven circles and circles and circles and eventually doesn't return because it sees land. And so Noah says, okay, there's land somewhere. Then he releases or starts to release the doves. And the doves don't fly as far as ravens. They can't. They fly a much shorter distance. And they also eat at much lower elevations. So the first dove comes, and there's nothing close by or low enough for them to land. And secondly, it gets progressively more, till eventually the dove reveals that there is a place low enough and close enough where they could live. A sustainable landing, if you will, close by. I lean towards that direction, because it's a little simpler. But regardless of your interpretation, here's the thing that I think is noteworthy. Noah is looking for a sign. We all hear that and think about that and, and understand what it means to look for a sign, right? To, to what do you want us to do next, God? And sometimes that's really practical, sometimes that's more spiritual, but Noah's looking for a sign. It seems, in very real terms, God has taken them to the edge of wilderness. Just like the Israelites had come to the edge of wilderness and could see the promised land. He wants to understand what's the next step, right? I'm starting to see the path. I'm, I'm seeing the fog start to lift. I can kind of see the direction I think we're supposed to go. Let's send out some signs and, and, and figure out if, if this is the case. And so through doves, Noah discovered that there was dry land close by. But he didn't get out of the boat. In fact, according to verse 13, after the last dove did not return, Noah waited another 29 days, another month, until the first day of the first month to do anything at all. Can you imagine those conversations? Yeah, the dove didn't return, guys, so I guess that means there's land close by. Yeah! All right, so when, uh, when are we out of here? Not yet. I'm going to sit on it for about a month. What? what do you, what's there to sit on? Isn't it clear? That it, that's, a, that's a sign of the Lord, Noah. Come on, Dad, let, let us out. All he did 29 days later, right? So the 29 days passed, month passed. All right, guys. This is it, guys. This is it. We're getting out. We're getting out. What is it, Dad? I just want you to take the covering off the top of the boat. So we can, like, 
build a ramp to get off. No, just, just take it off. He takes it off and he still does not move out from it. At this point, he has been in the ark, he and his family, 314 days, nearly 10 and a half months. And you go, what is he waiting for? Isn't it obvious? He is waiting for the Word of God. He's waiting for God to speak. And in doing that, he is waiting in the monotony of ten and a half months of the same thing every day. He's waiting in the inconvenience and the discomfort and even the pain of being in the same place for ten and a half months. And he can see what is destined for him. But he doesn't move. You see, signs are helpful. But when we're desperate to get out of wilderness, when, when the fog starts to lift, we almost see like, okay, this could be it. It's funny how many of those signs suddenly become green lights. Every sign's not a green light. And when you've been drifting a long time, directionless, hopeless, uncertain, it's very tempting to go, hmm, I think this is the way out of wilderness. Basically to force your way out of wilderness. Sometimes we make our own way. Force our own way. Sometimes we twist God's ways and pretty much that's just spiritualize our own. And sometimes we just use a very clear way of the world. Because when God is silent, when God is silent, every sign of hope becomes a door that we want to run through. So let me help you understand a couple things. And I say help you, and I preach to myself when I say this. Not every open door is opened by God. Not every open door has been opened by God. We like to convince ourselves of that, but we need to be patient. And even those doors that have been opened by God, that doesn't mean He said walk through it now. We have to be patient. And sometimes that means waiting in an ark and the monotony, and the inconvenience, and the pain for many months. Noah refused to go out early. Even though it seemed to make sense, even though it felt good, even though it looked right, he refused to go out before God spoke. He intentionally waited in the boat when practically speaking, he didn't have to. Noah and his family, I imagine, were very tempted to move but he is faithful to wait until God clearly says, go. See, God, better than us, better than our friends, God knows when we are ready for His mission. And the other thing that we don't think about is that God also knows when His mission is ready for us. God knows when we're ready for His mission, and He knows when the world that is now 
repairing itself, if you will, is ready for Noah. And he's willing to wait until he hears God say go. And at the end of the second month in the 601st year of his life, God speaks. Noah's waiting paid off. And God says, go out of the ark. And let's be honest, there are many to whom God has said go very clearly, and they have not. Noah certainly could have sat in the boat in fear and said, you sure? You're positive. Right? We, do, we play the game on both sides. God has said go. It had been 56 days, so nearly two months, since the ark's covering had been removed. And Noah and his family had been in the ark altogether just over a year. A year. In wilderness for a year. For some of us, that's our experience. For some of us, it's been very lo- much longer. And you're tempted to believe that God has forgotten. And I'll remind you of Genesis 8.1 that says He has not. But God speaks and Noah listens. And as instructed, he moves his family out and then he proceeds to release every beast and every bird and every creeping thing. You can imagine like, get out of here! Get them out! It's moving day! But I think it's noteworthy that this is all that Noah does. And what do I mean by that? Well, the New Testament calls Noah a preacher of righteousness. But it's interesting that not one of his sermons is recorded. And what I mean by that is that from Genesis 6 to Genesis 8, Noah never says a word. He never says a word. When God speaks, Noah listens. When God is silent, Noah waits silently. When God speaks again, Noah listens again. He never complains. He never argues. He never demands like some kind of entitled child who wants the answer to come right now according to my timeline and satisfy my desires. He doesn't question God and say, why so long? Why now? Why not then? He says nothing. He just obeys. More than anything, I think Noah is characterized as a man who waits for God's word and follows when he speaks and tells others to do the same. Perhaps his sermons as a preacher of righteousness were to his family. Perhaps they were the ones complaining a lot and arguing and questioning and doubting. And perhaps he's a preacher of righteousness because he simply said, trust God. God has not forgotten us. Trust God. It's a good lesson, man. Trust God. He's got this. And then the first thing Noah does after unloading is not something God told him to do. So I think it's evidence of where his heart was truly at. While he was probably very eager, as I'm sure his bride was, to set up house, to establish camp, to build a home, to get the family settled, that's not the first thing it says that he did. It says the first thing he does is build an altar to the Lord. 
using some of the extra clean animals. And I don't mean extra clean as an extra shiny, but he literally brought extra animals who were clean. Read that in chapter 7. The animals that God said, make sure you bring these additional animals as well. Noah made a burnt offering. God had saved Noah just as He had saved Israel. And if you remember, Moses went into Egypt and he told Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord, let my people go so that they can go out and worship me. God is saving. He has saved Noah. He has saved Israel. And He is saving us for the purpose of becoming a people who worship Him, which is really an invitation to enjoy Him. And though the purpose of the sacrifice is not explicitly stated, the reason He is worshiping is not explicitly stated, when the Israelites would have read this, because this is originally obviously written for the Israelites, who are in the wilderness, about to go into the promised land, the story would have been an encouragement to them they would have read burnt offering and remembered what Moses had been told that became Leviticus chapter 1. And in Leviticus chapter 1, the first burnt sacrifices are described, sacrifices made by the priests for the purposes of atoning sin. Noah's triumphal exit is not just some religious ritual to check a box. It is very much a worshipful confession. It's not just merely a burnt offering of thanksgiving, right? You would think that he's getting out. He's like, yes, Lord, praise you for what you've done. And in some sense, he is. But in another sense, he's actually making a very real and meaningful confession. He is worshiping God for who he is in light of who he knows he is. His sacrifice means much more than just thanksgiving. By offering his sacrifice, Noah is expressing and submitting to God's gracious rule. He steps out of the ark, he builds an altar, and he declares, this is your world, God. You are creator. I am dependent upon you. I am accountable to you. You are God. I am not. You are creator. I am creation. I owe you everything. You owe me nothing. But it's even more than that. By offering his sacrifice, a sacrifice really of atonement for his own sins, Noah is declaring, I am just as evil as the men that you killed. I am just as undeserving. God will later say at the end of Genesis 8, right? Evil. The hearts of men are evil. The hearts of men are evil from their youth. You realize that like he's talking about Noah. They're the only men that exist. And Noah knows that. He confesses that he is undeserving. He declares God to be good and him to be bad. And him to need a sacrifice for his sins. But perhaps lastly and more, important, and more importantly, by offering this as sacrifice, Noah is confessing trust in the way God does things. After being in a boat drifting, waiting for over a year. He is confessing, God, your ways are right. Regardless of how he felt, regardless of what he thought, he declares by this sacrifice, your ways are right. God, you are right to let me drift. 
You were right to let me wait. You were right to disagree with my ideas and my timelines. Tim Keller famously said that if your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. The truth is, God has very different ways and timelines than us. And it's at those times that we find ourselves most in the wilderness and those times that we find our faith most tested. Am I going to trust that God knows better than I do and submit to his ways and receive them? When the Lord smells the sacrifice, he's pleased. He's pleased in that he accepts Noah's worship and his confession. But the truth is, This will not be the last sacrifice that's required. That's what Genesis 8 says. Though he does say, I'll never again curse the ground, he says that the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. He doesn't say that past tense. He didn't say, oh, I cleaned up all the sinners. Men are no longer evil. He says men are still evil, which means that there will need to be more sacrifices. This is not the last time a sacrifice will have to be made. They will have to be made as continually as men are evil. The sins of men require a continual sacrifice, a perpetual atonement so that God can be pleased and we can be in His presence. Left alone though, we won't do that. We won't build altars. We won't make sacrifices because our hearts are evil. We will not receive God's ways. We will not listen to God's commands because the hearts of men, our hearts, left by themselves, are wicked, rebellious, and deceitful. And even if we were to muster the strength to make a sacrifice for our sins today, we would need another for the sins tomorrow and another, and another, and another. Which is why we need a greater priest than Noah and a greater sacrifice than an animal. Enter Jesus. Hebrews 10 tells us very clearly, beginning in verse 11, describing the burnt sacrifices and the offerings that Israel made. He says that every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins, not permanently. But, it says in verse 12, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, this is the covenant, right? Remember the covenant he made with Noah prior to his redemption. And the covenant he will make, we'll talk about next week, with Noah marked by a rainbow. All pointing towards the covenant that Christ makes. This is the covenant I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And he adds, I'll remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. 
Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. So bring it all together and hear me at a Genesis 8 comes Jesus. After Noah's sacrifice, God clearly says in Genesis 8, I will never again unleash my wrath on the earth and its people, but he did unleash his wrath again. But this time he unleashed his wrath on behalf of his people onto his son. When Noah made his sacrifice, God said, I'm finished. I'm no longer going to do this. But when Jesus made a sacrifice, what did he say? It is finished. I am finished. I'm no longer going to punish sin this way. I'm no longer going to rescue men this way. But here is where I'm going to punish sin finally and rescue people permanently. It is finished. No more. Our worship now no longer comes through the sacrifice of animals, but through the sacrifice of our lives. That is now our spiritual act of worship. How we live as those who have been saved and redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ is how we declare our submission to God's rule. And that is how we admit, as Noah admitted, our weaknesses And that is how we confess our trust in His ways and His timing and His grace through it all. I hope you know that this is the most important part of our service. The most important part of our service is not the fellowship time. It's not the music. It's not the sermon. It is this experience right here for those who are in Christ. If you are not a believer, this is not for you. If you are a believer, this is for you. If you're not a believer, I invite you to put your trust in Jesus Christ to save you. You cannot save yourselves, and you find yourself right now maybe in a wilderness, and I'm telling you, God is trying to use that to show you that you can't depend on anything or anyone but Him. And I pray that you'll be drawn to Him. But for those who are in Christ, this is for you. This is God's declaration that it is finished. This is God's declaration that I have not forgotten you. I know exactly where you are. And I remember you. And I pray you come and remember me. And remember that you are loved. And remember that you're forgiven. And remember that God is orchestrating all things for the glories of His grace purposed for His glory and your joy. I pray that we will trust that. I pray that we'll know that. And I pray you'll experience that as you see Jesus Christ's body broken for you and Jesus Christ's blood shed for you, that you'll believe that He who would not withhold His Son would not withhold any good thing from you. I pray we'll believe that and trust that. It is finished. It is finished. Let's pray.